All right, this is a special episode of The Haber Show. I think you're going to love it. With a crazy free agency coming to a close and a battery recharge this summer for all of us, this week's guest on the pod is Matt Mayberry, who is a behavior designer and COO of Boundless. Probably don't know what that is, but you'll know after this pod. It's a company that has consulted with NBA teams about managing addictive phone habits and leveraging that screen time for more positive outcomes. In May, Mayberry was featured on Diane Sawyer's ABC News special on screen time, and his company was featured on Anderson Cooper's 60 Minutes special a couple years ago. That's when I first heard of this company. Uh, It does incredible things. Scary things, but I think good things. Mayberry's a big NBA fan, as you'll find out, um, and he's an expert on persuasive technology and the role of social media and behavior, emotional states, and why we need that dopamine hit from our phones. We'll talk about Adam Silver's age of anxiety comments in March. We'll talk about Dion Waiter's recent Instagram post about depression and social media, hashtag Philly cheese, and why healthy phone use is uniquely important in today's NBA compared to all the other major sports. So yeah, it's okay. If you want to use your phone to listen to this podcast, I ain't mad at you. This is okay. You'll learn some better habits. I certainly have. And with that, let's get to it. Mr. Mayberry, how are you doing today? Well, thank you for having me. It's very exciting. I feel like one of these things that we do here on this podcast is we we open up by saying we're really excited and it's great. But really, you just want to talk about NBA because you're secretly an, a super big NBA fan. And I want to talk to you about your profession. And you probably just want to ask me about what Kawhi and Paul George are going to do. Exactly. I think there's a happy, happy marriage between the two of us where we get to talk about what I do and what you do in a very like nice, harmonious way. So I'm sure we'll get a lot about behavior design and technology and AI. And also, I can extol the virtues of why every NBA team should draft nothing but University of Arizona basketball players. Oh. So I'm sure we'll touch on both of those in the next hour. <laughs> wait, wait. Did you read my story about how Andre Iguodala is a Hall of Famer? I definitely did because I follow you on Twitter and uh, I'm sure that came up. Like my eyes just recognized seeing Andre's name. I'm like, Oh, a fellow alum. I got to read this story. Yeah, oh, here we go. Well, and I agree um, with you. He's a hall of famer. Of course you do. You're not biased or anything. I won't, I won't check you on your not bias. Not a Homer at all. Well, um, well, for those who are listening at home, uh, you're going to end this conversation thinking differently. I don't know about worse or better, but thinking differently, about your relationship with your phone. Some probably think it's uh, an addictive relationship. Some people think it's completely healthy. Or maybe just ask your significant other, your partner, or your mom or dad how much you're on your phone. But what Matt does is one of the more fascinating areas of not just the NBA, but I think in life in general. Uh, And he was on my panel at the Sloan conference uh, in March and you were on the same panel with like the top running coach and one of the great like performance authors in the world. Uh, Steve Magnus, you're on stage with Sue Bird, one of the best basketball players ever. You were on the stage with George Carl, one of the best coaches in basketball ever. And you were the star of the show. And I'm not just blowing you up here because you're on the podcast right now, but um, you ended the hour that we, or whatever it was, 45 minutes that we talked about social media, uh, impact on athletes and uh, phone addiction and all this fun stuff. And at the end, you blew people's minds with the fact that 
people like you, behavior designers or AI uh, programmers, software developers, all they're all in this like gold rush to, I guess, collect data on human behavior and see what people want, what they truly want. Uh, to see what their desires are. And NBA players uh, are on the road all the time. They're laying down all the time, whether it's on the training table, whether it's in the bedroom because they travel 41 road games a year. And you said at the end of the Sloan Conference panel, and it kind of was like a mind-blowing moment, and I want to start here, that you can see what kind of mood or depressed state people potentially are in based on how they're holding their phone or swiping on a phone, is that true? That is true. So when we traditionally look at um, how data is collected, like the, the kind of the gold rush now is to really understand human behavior at its most natural and organic level, and then also understand like, human decision-making. Okay. And so traditionally, we've had to go to labs, and we've had to have PhD students and undergrads and grad students you know, build these complicated experiments, get people in a controlled lab, have a thesis, have a hypothesis, run through, it takes years. What's been amazing is the cell phone or the devices that we have in our pockets have become these extremely quick and fast and valuable psychometric devices, better than anything that's been invented in the last 100 years. And so by understanding human behavior and understanding what data to collect, we can actually tell, and this is true, uh, someone's mood state. So at Boundless, what we look at is how somebody holds their phone. So we can look at their accelerometer data, their gyroscope data. We can look at the movement of their thumb on the screen. Are they swiping slowly? Are they swiping with intention? Are they swiping quickly? Does it look like they're developing a binge behavior? Or are they kind of aimlessly scrolling? And what we can do is with all those data points, make a pretty good assumption about the current mood state of that individual. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, why is that valuable? Well, one, we can tell if people are feeling sad or depressed. So if you're laying in bed and you hold your phone at a certain angle, you have kind of like a listless movement to your finger. Uh, we can tell that you are you know, sad or, or depressed or possibly angry. Um, but we can also tell if somebody's in a heightened state of arousal. If somebody is browsing or using the device or an app with a certain intent, so a company might find that valuable as to maybe propose when somebody should upgrade their subscription or when to hit somebody with a buy it now offer. So we can actually look and see what are these like core moods of a person um, and then how to better influence their behavior uh, in the future for something positive. Well, I think this is perfect timing to discuss this now, Matt, because we're kind of in a down period in the NBA schedule. This is kind of like the New Year's resolution point of the season where everyone kind of winds down free agency is over the draft is over the the championship is crowned and now it is like workout season um where all these athletes are now in the gym um and these kind of like Blair Witch Project type cameras are, are watching you know Ben Simmons you know jumper and like all this stuff is happening now just to fill time just to uh, get content out and um I feel like now is when people start in the NBA world, start devoting themselves to new diets or new sleep habits or meditation. And um, I also think that this is a time of anxiety because players, well, at least before free agency, let's just zoom back a, a month ago, players are probably really just feeling nervous about 
where they are in the world or where they deserve to be, uh, where they should be. Is the grass always greener on the other side? Kevin Durant was one of several players who switched teams, and we saw an unprecedented number of players switching teams. Uh, I did a big number last week where nine of the top 30 free agents this summer, uh, only nine of them stayed with their teams. And it happened at such a rapid pace and it happened with an NBA league that is so hyper-tuned to Instagram and social media and Twitter, um, way more than the NFL, way more than Major League Baseball, way more than the NHL. And um, I just wonder after what Adam Silver said at the Sloan Conference where we were at, you know, how much of the phone activity is a reflection of, you know, just our inner... Uh, insecurities like are players liking more photos or players living on their phones more because they're feeling a little more down adam silver said they live in a uh the nba players are are in a state of anxiety and that players will hole up in their hotel rooms and i just feel like when all these players are switching teams and um everyone seems to be just nervous about where they are is that a reflection of something deeper or is our phones and the relationship with phones accelerating or enhancing that anxiety or those stressors that NBA lifestyles can, can bring upon you? That's a great question. Uh, I, th- I think it's a, it's a complicated question and there are a lot of factors that go into it. I think if you went back and you looked at maybe the NBA landscape from 70s, 80s, 90s, you, you probably see uh, a lot less player movement for a bunch of different reasons. And I think one of the reasons we see it now uh, is one, a lot of players are friends with each other. I think we've kind of entered this golden age of like the friendly NBA where everybody plays on the same AAU circuit. They go to the same trainers, like kind of the bad blood that existed in the NBA in the nineties really isn't there. And I think that's two reasons. One, like I said, there's, you know, more after school programs, AAU programs, and then two players can have these kind of um, like pseudo friendships with each other through their phones and through their devices. So they can follow each other on Instagram and have a superficial layer of a friendship where they might like each other's photos, which makes them feel they're a little bit more connected. And so when they get on the court, they know what their opponent's dog looks like or where they just took a vacation with their supermodel girlfriend or what the locker room looks like on the other, you know, on the other side. And then two, you're right. I think there's, a greater anxiety growing amongst players for that same reason. So now, you know, in the seventies or eighties or nineties, you were just happy to be an NBA player. And it didn't really matter if you were a Laker, Nick, Celtic, you know, jazz, whatever, you were kind of on an open playing field and you really didn't have insight to the day to day. So you didn't really know the train staff, the other team, you didn't really know what the other teams playing look like or their facilities or, you know, what their family room looked like. But now every player can see that and they had this anxiety, but maybe they made the wrong decision with their team. Like, Is the grass greener by moving to Toronto or Dallas or markets where they might have better facilities, but was never really thought at as, as, a, as a better free agent destination. And a lot of that is because we share so much. Like, I know what more NBA locker rooms look like now, just from seeing players' Instagram stories than I ever had in my entire life. You know, I know the names of like bizarro training staff people because I see LeBron or I see Katie, you know, filming himself on the table or whatever it would be. And that's kind of unprecedented and really new that we haven't seen this like open sharing in the NBA and 
you know, so it's almost like ever. the grass might have always been greener or seemed greener, but the fence was so high in previous generations that you didn't get to see that grass, right? Now there isn't even yeah, a fence. There is no fence. It's strange to see because I think, too, you and I talk, have talked about this in the past, but as players travel more, so they have this long season, it becomes harder for them to to really go out and be an average person. Because if you're seven foot one, you can't really blend in when you're walking down the street in Los Angeles or Houston or Dallas or somewhere. So these players kind of hole up in their, in their rooms. They find comfort playing video games. They find comfort amongst their teammates, but what they really do is they find comfort kind of expressing themselves through social media. So you see a bigger presence on Instagram or Twitter or, you know, whatever their, their favorite outlet or channel is. And these players now see almost like a bubble world of other NBA players. And everyone is either, silently trying to flex on somebody or show how good their life is. And it builds this level of anxiety where everybody feels like they don't have it good. So even though they're in their second or third contract, they're making tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. They're still unhappy with their life, which is just a wild thing for me to think about that somebody that's, you know, hit the peak of their professional life and physical life and has all the money in the world. They're just sad and upset that somebody else maybe has it a little bit better because they make you know, $2 million more a season or score four extra points or live in a better city where it doesn't snow. That's just uh, the hard thing for me to wrap my head around. So like you work with neuroscientists, you, you are a behavior designer yourself. Like what is, is it really that wild that super uh, talented people are sizing themselves up with other people, no matter how much money they make, they're unhappy. Like I see it in, Hollywood, I see it in with rock stars. It just seems like depression or feeling uh, feelings of loneliness or feelings of I'm not good enough. It hits everybody, and it's almost it's like it does. Like so, so what is it about um, phones? Like what can you do um, that can help not just NBA players but people at home listening that are like, man, I I didn't realize how much of my mind state is being influenced by the screen time. Yeah, so we actually designed and developed and deployed uh, kind of an anti-screen addiction app called Space. Um, and what Space does, so I'm sure people are familiar with like Apple Screen Time and Instagram has their own version and Google has theirs. What those do really is just kind of like give you the facts and figures about your screen time, but they don't actually drive interventions to help you quit or to help you really get a grasp of how bad it is. And so our app actually rewires you on a neurological level to so kind of put this block between your instant gratification sensors um, to really help you limit and break free from your addictive social media apps. I've tried this. It's really effective uh, and it's really annoying. <laughs> it's, it's really yeah. annoying. It's like, uh, Oh, breaking news. Uh, uh, Zion Williamson just signed with the Jordan brand. I, I want to see what people are talking about. Wait, I have to like wait five seconds and breathe through my nose to get to that that instant gratification. Then by the end of it, I'm like, do I really need to check it? And I'm like, wait, that is actually why this thing exists is that you reflect, you reflexively go to Twitter to see what everyone's saying about this newsbreaker. And then you're like, why did I need to know within five seconds, what people are saying? Are those five second or instantaneous reactions profound? Are they going to help me, uh, you know, think about this deeply? Is this going to change my life? Should I be looking at this when my kid is over there playing with uh, a soccer ball? Like those things, those thoughts of like, should I really be checking Twitter right now? Happens in those five minutes when you realize, wait, I'm just doing this without even thinking about it. 
Yeah, you do it out of compulsion because you do it because you've been trained to do it because somebody like me has sat in a room and designed those bells and whistles and those notifications to get you to salivate and want to check you know, that notification when it comes in. Um, so somebody has already kind of put control over you to want to use that app or to want to live in that world. And we decided that that's not right. That's not how we should be going about humans. We shouldn't be designing humans in that way. Um, and so with our creation space, you can actually reprogram yourself to not grab your phone the second you hear that ding or to not in that moment of boredom or of understimulation, grab your phone and endlessly scroll or open up Twitter, or, you know, dive into one of those cesspools of social media that is otherwise making you pretty unhappy. Because I feel like um, NBA players or NBA execs, coaches, uh, they're on their phones a lot. I'm on my phone a lot. And part of me says, hey, we should be designing things to get me off my phone so I could like go outside and enjoy uh, nature and actually enjoy reality. But I also think that some of the things um, that coaches or players could use is like, wait, if I had an app that helped me eat better or sleep better, I should be using that more. And if I don't, if I'm not able to dedicate myself to uh, an eating regimen or a sleeping regimen outside of my phone. And if I'm on this thing already, I might as well use my phone to, to get healthier. And do players or coaches in your experience, do those things work and why don't they work if they don't? They do work if they're used properly. And if the, the software application is designed with the intention to have a healthy relationship with the app. So there's a lot of really low hanging fruit when you design a software product to make people um, relying or addicted on it. So a notification is a great way of figuring out when to ask somebody to reopen the app or to execute a behavior, giving somebody uh, a little token or a badge or a reward when they do the desired action. So if you have a running app, most of the time when you finish a run, you get a little like congratulations or great job or a trophy pops up. All these things are great. The hardest thing is adoption and a lot of the, the app developers don't have a good idea of how people actually form habits. So what you want to do is when you form a habit is you want to give somebody a reward the time that they expect it the least. And one thing that we're good at at Boundless and in, in our work in neuroscience and behavior design is figuring out that exact moment to reward an individual when they start a behavior so it's likely they continue that behavior in the next session or the next day. So we've built this AI system that looks into each person, figures out who they are, figures out how they're behaving, and then actually can predict when they should receive that little digital high five to get them to come back and do that thing more and more and more. So like a player's on the road and has this urge to play Fortnite. Yep. And one, one night he just like says, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to play. I'm going to get get to bed and, and get some sleep. So you're saying that boundless or behavior designers like yourself can time the high five or like the confetti in the phone or the push note or push notification to like make me develop that habit of not playing Fortnite or at exactly. least playing fewer hours of Fortnite? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And so you need to have that dopamine release to help form a habit. And we're really good about getting your brain that dopamine through a perfectly timed reinforcement or reward. So whether it's you want to start a behavior or break a behavior, we know on the most neurological level who you are and what should be delivered to guide you down whatever road you want, whether it's habit formation or habit breaking. 
So you say we know who you are. Like what the like what does that mean? Like I get really scared when you say <laughs> that. Like and, and shouldn't NBA players if like if the players union came to you and said, Hey, we, we think that our players would really benefit from having, you know, a product like this on their phones to help them manage their screen time or manage positive habits or um but don't you have to kinda get inside the life of a player that might feel like an invasion of privacy or at least like a they're, they're, you're almost, you're almost knowing me better than I know myself. And that's really effing scary. It's scary, but it's also a good thing. And I think <laughs> one thing I want to make clear is that <laughs> I, I get this a lot and I really need to work on how I uh, you know explain what we do here at Balance. But what we don't collect is anything that's like personally identifiable. So we don't know your name, location, race, height, sex, weight, nothing like that. You know, so when I look at our, database of users, I can't type in the word like Stanley Johnson or Aaron Gordon and like their profile comes up. You know, we get this anonymized version of your behavioral data. And that's what's important to us is seeing how you behave. So, uh, I noticed you you used Arizona guys there. How you do things. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'll go all day. This is, this is just the start of it. (laughs) Um, and that's what's important to us. And so there are, there are companies that collect those deeper things like your transactional data, location data and all that. We're not interested in that. We simply want to know what you're doing, how long you're doing it for, and are you ready to build this new behavior or not build this new behavior? So for the MBA to come to us, there would be no like HIPAA data that would be transferred, nothing personally identifiable. There's no way for us to tell in their system who a player is, what team they're on, anything like that. Okay, because I, I feel like uh, one of the things that players are, are, are scared of, and human beings, uh, myself, is that like Google and Facebook and Amazon are just inside my house and just stealing all of my stuff and Neve's dropping and surveilling like everything in my life. So that that is a concern. Um, and I know with like even biometric stuff, like catapult data or Connexon, like any of these these GPS trackers that players use in practice or, or teams want to use in practice or sleep monitor, monitoring, like there is some real pushback because – you know, it seems like an invasion of privacy, but what you're saying is basically uh, it is anonymized and it's not actually like tagging you personally with stuff that um, super sensitive data. So it's not like taking any blood or uh, any sort of your DNA or anything like that. It would just simply be looking at your phone habits and say, what are the things that you want to do? Um, what are the goals or what are the things you want to cut down or maximize in your life? And you try to build good habits on it. Have you found success with NBA players or what is the, what is the issue that NBA players are unique versus like regular populations? That's, that's a great question. There are, so I've talked to a lot of players and coaches, uh, and organizations and you are right. So a lot of the players are very scared about giving over biometric data. So even something as simple as wearing like, um, a Fitbit or one of those like other stuff counters, the fear is that if they wear one of these things and give up something personal about their training, it's going to make them less valuable uh, on the free agent market. So a, a, a GM will look at it and say, oh, he's lazy. He's not doing his routine. He's not worth that much money. Yeah. Huge, huge pushback. And players are really, really scared about giving up what could be valuable to them. So even things like the shot tracking apps that show you know, what they're shooting, they're nervous that it's going to give them a lower contract. When I've talked to these players and coaches, what's really unique about, I think, professional athletes, especially the NBA, is that players are good at routines 
but bad at habits. So what happens is, uh, you know, a player has their set routine on, let's say, game day. They wake up, they're hotel, they go down, they have breakfast, they have a team meeting, they have shoot around. They do the same thing every single day, wherever, but you, you don't get the dopamine release that comes with forming a habit. And so these players think that they're building this good behavior, but it's something that they don't do then when they get home or do in the off season. So no players waking up like right now and, and having that same game day mentality where they go downstairs, eat breakfast, go to the gym, do these different things. There's no reward for doing it. And teams have tried to incorporate some of these more habit-forming things. They want their players to sleep well. They want them to eat better. They want them to stay off their phones, but they don't know how to bring that into their organization that isn't, one, having the player give up a ton of data, and two, not babysitting the player through the process. They, they want to be able to say that, you know, you guys are grown men and adults and millionaires. You should be able to go to bed on time. But the fact of the matter is they just can't. They just don't have the discipline. But they also don't want to have like Big Brother medicine. watching them in the in the app, right? Like they don't want to feel like someone's always watching exactly. on their phones. Exactly. And, and some of the teams that I've talked to have had some pretty, pretty progressive and interesting ways to, to tackle this. So I spoke to one team that they had a daily... Uh, mood check-in. So when they would walk into a team meeting, they had a little board and almost like a, a kindergarten class, you would touch like the face that you were feeling that day. And so it didn't require the player to vocalize how they were feeling. They didn't have to do it in front of everybody. They didn't have to do it to the entire front office, but there was somebody like an, an assistant or a ball boy that would kind of just look and see what face the player touched. And then we report back to the How many faces are we talking here? Operations. Two emojis, three emojis. How many faces? I think it's like it's it like three to five. Like, have you ever seen one of those like where you leave a restaurant and it was like, "How's our service today?" You can yeah. push one of those like red. Yeah, it was basically it was one of those. Gotcha. And that way, the coach could get a feel for how the team was feeling. Was everybody excited? Were they down after a loss? Were they tired from traveling? And then he could kind of restructure the plan for that day based on a really quick and dirty emotional reading of the team and of the room. I thought that was really interesting because. The players know, you know, it's not really being recorded. No one's really processing it. And they didn't have to feel vulnerable or exposed to either third parties or to their own teammates, but they could get something beneficial back from it. So it's not the most ideal way to do it, but it's a great start um, for teams that want that, like a daily emotional check. What about phone bags at team dinners? Good idea, bad idea, or good first step? Uh, It's a great first step. I love that idea. Uh, we do that here, even at my company, when we have meetings or lunch, it's phone down, phone in the middle. Um, I've heard a lot of teams do that. They put them in bags, they put them in the cages. I think it's a fantastic thing, not even for cell phone addiction, but just for being more present and connecting better with your teammates. Um, one of my favorite stories was that I had talked to a, I think a 15-year MBA vet who moved into coaching and is now, now coaching a college team. And I asked him, what's the number one difference between playing in the NBA in the nineties and early two thousands, and then being a coach now in this current kind of current uh, day. And he said that players uh, talked to each other more back then. The only really device that they had were Walkmen and the batteries were terrible. Headphones were terrible and it was more frustrating to use than anything else. So the camaraderie was a lot stronger and he, felt that some of the playing and basketball IQ that was happening during his time playing was better today because he felt like there was some sort of like unspoken connection between the players 
that the players today don't have because anytime they're not on the court, they're buried in their phones, thinking about something else, distracted by something else. But that is a, a really, really interesting observation from somebody that's kind of seen both worlds of the connected and non-connected NBA. Well, so you're, what you're saying is that players think that they're connected because they just like their friend's photo, but really that's kind of superficial camaraderie or superficial chemistry? Yeah, I do. I, I think that, and I, and I think a lot of the older players might say that, and yeah, I wish I had some data or some evidence to back it up, but it just seems like players now are superficially connected because it's really easy to double tap on a photo and like it, but it's also a lot more difficult, especially you know, if you're 19 years old, 20 years old, and you're just entering the league, you know, you don't really have a well-defined um, emotional intelligence or social intelligence. And reconnecting with players, whether they're veterans or the coaching staff or people from different backgrounds, is difficult. It's a, it's a hard skill to learn. And they can kind of, like, cheat a little bit and hit a retweet or hit a like to feel like they're, they're being a good teammate instead of hanging out with somebody, getting to know somebody, spending that really good like, person-to-person, face-to-face time. And I think if players do that, you might see a better on-court product. And I'm not complaining with what's happened in the NBA now, but it'd be interesting to see if there was a correlation between, um, you know, minimizing phone usage at team functions and then, you know, the win percentage of a team that really did that. So Kawhi Leonard is famously offline, right? Like he's, he, he doesn't have a Twitter. Well, he does, but it's been, uh, I think the last time he's used it was like five years ago. He has like four tweets. He's not on Instagram and he just won a championship and he just created one of the biggest, you know, trade heists, uh, you know, leaving the Toronto Raptors and convincing Paul George to, uh, come to the Clippers and demanding a trade. And it was all offline. Like, no, it didn't leak yeah. like it, it was. And it was fascinating to me because it seemed like there was almost an advantage to being offline. There was an advantage to being, uh, you know, not not on social media or not having your movements tracked. And even then he was tracked on a freaking uh, like car chase from uh, in Toronto where it seemed like even though he's not online or he doesn't have any social media channels and he's not liking photos, people still figured out a way to like track them. But do you think that there is a real um, advantage to, I don't know, not being offline, but having more efficient use of your time? I think you called it like when we talked a couple of years ago, you said it was like the sabermetrics of this era, which is like efficient phone use or healthier phone use. Like is Kawhi an example of that? I think so. There's, there's definitely a movement. Um, people call it like the time well spent movement. So there's nothing wrong with using your device. I mean, I use mine every day, but I try and do it in a mindful way. So if I'm going to pick up my phone, I do it with intention. Um, I don't use it as a crutch to pass time or to get some sort of like, uh, you know, dopamine rush from, you know, a bunch of likes on Instagram and having these players, somebody like Kawhi have, and he obviously owns a cell phone, but having a healthier relationship and not using your phone to um, kind of reinforce like your worst tendencies. So whether you are, uh, you know, seeking validation from friends, teammates, the, the public space, um, it's going to build a healthier person. I mean, We've all seen, I know you have and I have, and ESPN and some of our other big sports outlets have done a great job of 
uh, bringing to light a lot of the mental health issues that are happening in sports. Jackie McMillan had a, a really good three or four or five piece thing about mm-hmm. a year ago um, with players expressing how unhappy they are because for a b- bunch of reasons. One is, you know, fans can really get in their face. If you have Twitter and you're excited about a game, there's going to be some guy somewhere that's not excited about your game. He's going to let you hear it. And you just have this great high moment and you know some mouth breather in oklahoma <laughs> says uh you know go go kill yourself or whatever it would be um and i think players are getting smarter at least i hope they are about not seeking this external validation from their devices because it's just leading to more and more mental health issues more and more anxiety more and more pain and they're actually playing worse and a lot of the teams that i've talked to they, they've had a somebody on staff that has looked at a player's performance um, after a night where they've been like tweeting past, uh, I think it was like midnight or 2 a.m. And they can actually point and say, if this player is up past this time and they're active on Twitter, we can almost guarantee that they're going to have a you know, 20% shooting night the next day because well, somebody gets in head and they can't get over it. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a study out of Stony Brook that said um, that your points per game and your field goal percentages drop um, the 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 day after a late night tweet. So like if you're they mm-hmm. they checked uh, tweets after like 11 p.m. local time or whatever it was, and then it, it's an amazing study. And it, it I don't know about the causation whether they're they're awake late at night because of something else. They broke up with their girlfriend. Uh, someone stole money from them. Uh, you know, they had a death in the family and so they're up and then they tweet, not because they're on social media, but because something else is happening in their life. But whatever it is, there is an association between late night tweeting uh, and performance the next day, which would suggest that, hey, just put your phone down or at least put your phone in the bathroom or somewhere where you can't get to it when you're laying in bed uh, and try to get some more sleep. But it seems to make sense that if you're up late at night, the night before a game, or uh, if you're if you're right before a game, flipping through your Instagram. I know Steph Curry has admitted that it, at ha- at half times he would check his Instagram, uh, Twitter, and he's a two time MVP. So if a two time MVP feels the need to go check into his uh, social media accounts at halftime of an NBA game, I got to imagine players two through 15 on the roster doing the same damn thing. So when you brought this up, Dion Waiters, uh, who is famously from Philadelphia and mentioned so much in his Instagram post last week, uh, was like a before and after photo on Instagram. I'm curious about your thoughts on this, but he had a, a before shot of him in the, in a Miami heat uniform, uh, last year. And then an after when he's looking much thinner and in the gym shirt off, and he wrote this caption last year when I came off one of the most depressing and frustrating times of my year uh, of my life, sorry, uh, coming off injury and not feeling like myself nor looking like myself. I was in a dark place mentally and physically because the game I loved so much was taken away due to season ending surgery. And here's the kicker. Nowadays, with this social media ran world, they laughed at me, made jokes, etc., not knowing what I was battling or going through every day. So instead of me joining the circus, I told myself, You've, you're from Philly. You've been through the worst shit in your life than this. So I promised myself I will work my ass off and get back to where I was before the injury. I'm not done yet, but I know somebody in the world probably needed to hear this. Stay positive, block out the outside noise, and grind hashtag Philly cheese. What are your thoughts on that? Right then and there, I mean, that's case in point that these players are being affected by their devices, by what they read. And so here's somebody, I think what he was a lottery pick, top four, 
for all intents and purposes, he's probably a great guy. He's worked hard. He's made money. And yet he, he falls down this rabbit hole of uh, sadness and depression. And instead of finding a way to pick himself up, he opens up his phone and instead everything is reinforced. Somebody calls him a bum. Somebody calls him, you know, thick. Somebody calls him all these terrible things. And if you're a young man, you know, by yourself, hold up in your apartment, rehabbing an injury, that's going to hurt. That's going to sting. And we're always quick to look at like the kid that's bullied at school or the kid that's bullied online. But that applies to anybody. I mean, I get, I get things written about me on Twitter or our company all the time. And man, it stinks. I've had to stop looking this up to look for news articles because I hate when like some other guy in tech rips into the hard work that I've done. And somebody like him has a much bigger exposure to the outside world. And it's, it's unique too, because when you're a professional athlete, you have your core fan base. So, you know, the team that you play for, so all the Miami Heat fans support Deion Waiters. Let's just say for, for this exercise. And then the rest of the NBA hates them because they're not his player. And then within the core, you know, Miami Heat fan base, he also has haters. And it's probably rare, it's probably 99% of league followers that are like, no, no, that guy sucks, forget him. So finding this like um, community of, of support and positivity has got to be really difficult for a lot of these players, even though they're making a ton of money at the top of their game. They still go through the same things that we go through, but much, much more you know, magnified at a much bigger scale. And those are the times when you're most vulnerable, right? Like, what does the science say about that where – you know, when you're feeling depressed, you're feeling down, or if you're injured, like for these guys, they're, they can't get on their feet for months. So they got to fill the time somehow. And it's depressing. Like your whole identity is wrapped up on your body and being the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, uh, the most athletic guys in the world. And then suddenly you're bedridden for months of course you're going to open, open up Twitter to pass the time. Of course you're going to see some negative comments because of the very nature that you're injured and fans are going to be mad because you make $15 million a year and, and you're, you're holding up the cap space and, and you can't play and um, you know all this stuff. Like This seems like a vicious cycle that is unique to the NBA, and I want to point this out. The NBA has more travel in its schedule than any other league in the four, like the four major sports. It's not even close. Like the NFL has 16 games right in the regular season. Eight of those are on the road. They have, um, you know, one flight a week on a bad week, right? Like they have uh, for like, mm-hmm. like, let's use the entire NBA as an example. They average forty-four thousand miles traveled in a regular season. The NFL. There are teams that have as low as 6,000 miles traveled in their regular season. They have 15 on average, right? So that's three times as much travel in an NBA schedule. Then you have, you know, baseball. It's somewhere around, I don't know. Uh, I think baseball's at, yeah, 29,000 miles traveled. Even though they have 162 games, they only travel 29,000. Um, and then NHL teams travel 40,000 miles in their schedule. So, the NBA is unique in the crazy amount of travel that they have over a long season. And if you have these injuries, you know, you could be, you know, just bedridden and immobile for weeks at a time. And then on top of that, what's unique about NBA players is you brought it up at the top. They're tall. 
You can't go out at night mm-hmm. if you're LeBron James and not get mobbed by people. You can't go out if you're nope. Harrison Barnes and not get mobbed by people. It's hard for people to understand how uh, isolating it can be that you can't even go out and 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 be in the public. Like you can't leave your hotel room and go walk down the street without being recognized and being bothered by potential people who want to take a selfie for you with you. And so for guys like Dion Waiters or for guys like Boogie Cousins or guys who are coming off of these really bad injuries, it's not just about the injury and the negativity. It's that they can't have these like most human moments of going outside and just being free to do whatever you want. They can't do that anymore. That is a cost of fame. They can't do it. That, that is a cost of being an NBA player that people don't quite understand is that baseball players – um, let's just say Mike Trout, the most famous baseball player, can walk into any bar in America and probably not get recognized. Whereas if Kevin Durant did that, they might not know who Kevin Durant is, but they might think he's famous because how many 6'11 guys do you see in your daily activities? I mean, it's just nuts. I think Paul Pablo Torre, my guy at ESPN, did a story for Sports Illustrated once. There's some ridiculous statistic that 14% of NBA or 14% of all seven footers have played in the NBA or something ridiculous like that. Like if you are in the NBA, you are a, a subgroup of the human population that will instantly be uh, identified in public. You cannot be anonymous in public. And I think that's what's so fascinating about NBA players. It's wild. So I'm about six foot five, six foot six. And I still, I don't look like an NBA player. I'm not built like an NBA player, except the fact that I'm tall. And I still, to this day, have people come and ask me if I play basketball simply because I'm tall. And I did as a kid. I don't play anymore because I'm not good enough to play in the NBA. But I can't imagine then being 6'11", you know, being a recognizable face and everywhere you go, having somebody stop you, even if they didn't know that you played in the NBA. Asking, oh man, you're tall. How tall are you? Do you play in the NBA? Like, that's gotta be just like, Nobody wants that. And like you said, to, to not be able to go out and do simple things like go to the grocery store, go to a bar, go to a restaurant, take your kid to the zoo without taking a thousand pictures. And I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this to go boo hoo hoo. These guys make a hundred million dollars, but everybody should have that ability to not feel like a prisoner in their own home. You know, they didn't choose this life of, of being six eleven with the ability to shoot a basketball. Uh, they should have those same freedoms that we allowed to have because it's good for your mental health. It's good for your mental well-being. It's good for your development as a person. And I, I truly feel for these players that, that are going through this. And I feel, if you think about this last free agency, this was kind of like the Twitter free agency, like the Woj bombs going off left and right, all the leaks, all the crazy stuff. And if I'm holed up in my house and I'm reading about free agency and I will use, keep using Dion Waiters, for example, and he's sitting there, he's got a bum leg. He opens up and he sees the, like, Kawhi trade. If he looks at the replies, even though that's something positive, that's, like, good for the league, exciting, maybe they're friends, somebody in that thing, unrelated to the Clippers, unrelated to the Raptors, will probably be a Heat fan who'll be like, oh, man, I wish we could have gotten Kawhi and got rid of that <laughs> bum-ass Dion Waiters. Like, that's got to suck to know that you're, like, you're hurt, you're trying to get some good – positive information about a friend and a colleague of yours yet there's still people trying to drag you online i just that's that's not a life that anybody should have to live simply because they you know can shoot a basketball 
what can we do about it? Like what, um, is it on Twitter? Is it on people at boundless? Is it on coaches? Like this phone is not going away. Um, and it's one of those things that, uh, Dr. Parham, who is, uh, at the players union, we've talked about it before. Uh, he's, he's the director of medical, I mean, sorry, director of mental health and wellness at the player NBA players union. And he's like, this is not going away. It's addicting to say the least, um, you know, phone, your relationship with your phone and, and social media, Instagram, all these things are not going away. So what are some ways that people, um, can not just re- recognize that, you know, this persuasive technology, as you call it, has control over you, but also recognize like you can do something about it. Yeah. The, it's extremely difficult to put technology back in the box once it's come out. So like you said, these phones are not going away. They're only going to get better, faster, more intelligent. Um, one of the things that I tell NBA coaches and front office executives and people in, in other leagues is that as a coach, as a leader, you get your players, for, let's just say, uh, 400 minutes a day. So that's about four hours, five hours, four or five hours a day. That's when you have their attention. I get them for the other 1,000. So the other 1,000 minutes that they're not with you, somebody like me or another company like me has their full undivided attention, and we possess the ability to get that person to be whatever we want them to be. And the quickest thing that they can do is let their players know that, that there are greater forces out there, whether they're uh, social media companies or behavior modification companies that are actively trying to make the, the four hours they spend with their coaches less efficient because we want their eyeballs. We want their brains for whatever product we're trying to sell. So let them know that a healthy and mindful relationship with their phone is step one, feeling like they're empowered to put their phone down, feeling like they're empowered to step away, Two, replacing what would be um, the low-hanging fruit use of their phone with something else and positive. So one of the major goals of a social media company is to be what I call like the bus stop app. So if you're sitting on a bus stop, which NBA players don't have to do, it's called the bus ride app. What's the first, you know, one, two, three, four, five apps mm. that that player is going to open on their phone? That's every company's goal is to be the app where if you're bored if you're unengaged, the thing that you pick up to solve that, you know, five minutes of boredom, letting players know that they can find other solutions to that. Because once they enter those apps, they're usually the toxic ones. They're nothing that's going to be beneficial. Like no one really reaches for their Kindle or their, uh, what I forget the other one is, you know, their, their Amazon, uh, reader app, things like that, they open Instagram because they want that first to dopamine. They want to feel good about something that they've done. Uh, three is understanding and teaching these players and teaching league executives how habits work, how behavior is shaped, how you can get the best out of your player using really basic principles around behavior design uh, that doesn't put them under the grasp of somebody else, somebody that's like me that has much more negative intentions for them. And it's how a scary much, world. So there's a lot, lot of forces. Yeah, but how much of this is also just having a conversation with your family or your friends, your buddies, because aren't they as influential on this stuff? As, like if everyone at dinner is sitting there and playing with their phones, no matter how good you are about your phone habits, isn't it just like part of your environment? It is, 100%. I, I gave a talk to, uh, to an NBA team a little while ago 
and I asked all the coaches, I was like, by show of hands, you know, how many of, of you think that your players have, um, have a phone problem? And every trainer, every coach, every executive raised their hand. And then I asked them, how many of you use your phone in the training room, on the team plane, at team dinners, uh, at a location that's not actually on the court during the game? And every single one of those coaches, executives, trainers also raised their hand. And so they can't sit there and preach to their players that phones are bad, you're building bad habits, this is hurting you, when the players turn around and look and see the coaches doing the exact same thing. There's a, a really common example that, you know, children learn behaviors by observing their parents. And there's a lot of studies now saying that parents can't figure out why their young kids have a desire to reach up and grab their phone or why children are taking a finger and oh. running it across a piece of paper or a book like an iPad. And it's because they're observational learners. And so they're watching their parents hold their phone. They're watching their parents swipe on an iPad. And they're developing those behaviors without ever having to interact with those devices. It's crazy. And like my, my daughter is for, two years old. Like my daughter is two years old, man. And she's, uh, when I take a video of her, like a funny video at home, she, as soon as I put my, my hand down after I take the video, she goes, my see it, my see it. And so she's already learned mm-hmm. that like after I put my phone down, she can see the video that I just took or the picture that I just took. Um, and we, we don't, we don't let her use an iPad. Um, we don't let her, we don't watch TV. Um, we don't, uh, like she doesn't have a personal iPad that she just plays games on or the only time that she watches like a, a TV show is when we're on long road trips. So we're going to get on, go on a road trip here in a little bit and we'll bust out the iPad and she goes puppy dog pals and she'll watch puppy dog pals. And I'm like feeling great as a parent that the only time that she's on a, on an iPad or a phone is, is when she's on a long road trip for extremely rare occasions. Right. But she's still swiping and she's still like grabbing my phone and, and understands like the mechanisms of how a, an iPad works or an iPhone works. I'm like, how does she know? And then I realized because she's yeah, just watching me. There's her view. She's watching you. She's watching you and the family and your wife and everybody around her. And, you know, I hear a lot of stories of, uh, of people saying, you know, I only I'm a parent. I don't use my phone for YouTube. I, I don't do it for Twitter, for Instagram, whatever. Why is my child, you know, having these, uh, having these pre, you know, pre-manufactured behaviors? And I always ask them, like, well, do you use it for work? Like, how often do you look at your kid while you're holding your phone and say, oh, mommy has a work email or mommy has a work call, and then you immediately pick up your device? It's the same observational learning. So just because you're not playing a game or browsing social media, still using your phone or your device in front of your child, they're going to pick up those behaviors. It's just designed, it's science, it's just how it happens. So the coach at Northwestern yesterday, this went viral. The video on Twitter has gotten 3.2 million views. And I I get it, people listening who are pointing out the irony of me pointing out the the Twitter page views and saying, (laughs) uh, look at how viral it went. Um, And we're talking about social media use. Um, So Pat Fitzgerald went on a rant uh, when he was asked, I'm presume I'm just guessing here because I didn't watch you know the question leading in, but he was asked about the decline in attendance in college football games in the Big Ten, um, and he went on this just impromptu rant about the use of phones in today's society and just like 
said kids are watching their phones and they're at concerts and dinner table. He gave a story about being at the dinner table uh, at a restaurant and like four couples, young couples around them were just uh, fooling around on their phones rather than actual having conversations. This was just a rant about attendance at Big Ten and he was saying this is about the phones and how people would rather be in their cave with 12 TVs and watch all the games rather than being at, at a Big Ten game. I'm like, yeah, duh. Um, and then, and then he just went on this rant and it got, and it got retweeted a thousand times, 3 million people watch this. And I'm like, I don't think this is about millennials. I think this is just about human beings and how we're wired in our brains. Like, I think it's just that they're exposed to it. Younger people are exposed to it in ways that older people like Pat Fitzgerald, who has gray hair. I don't know anything about Pat Fitzgerald. I just know he's a football coach at a great school and when he held up his phone at the press conference, Matt, it was it looked like uh, a ten year old phone. Like it's definitely not an iPhone. And he has has it on the press conference table, and he's like, "You know what the big problem is? We can't get away from these phones." And I'm like, "Funny, as you hold your phone up in the air that you had on your press conference table, the irony in that." But I I caution people who say this is a an, a generational issue. I I think that Facebook, if I open up my Facebook right now, I will see more posts from older people than I will from the younger generation. So I don't think this is is a generational thing. I think this is just a human, human humanity thing. Is that accurate? Like, is my intuition that this is something not necessarily about generational, how they're, uh, how they're wired, young people are wired. It's really just about how human beings are wired. It is. This is the current sign of times. Everybody, is using their phone at a higher frequency than they did before. Uh, I think the stat is like the boomer generation. So people 40 and older are like the heaviest sharers and users of Facebook. So they're the ones most likely to share a status, to share an update. Um, Everywhere I go, I see just as many adults on their phones as I do children, whether it's at a dinner table or walking down the street. I mean, this is something where our phones have taken over every aspect of our life because we rely on them for so many things whether it's travel or work or enjoyment or fun or connection. I mean, there's nothing that I do. I mean, my, my cell phone unlocks the door to my house. Like my cell phone powers the lights in my house. My cell phone has all these great tools and tricks that I've designed it to do to make my life easier. And more and more people are getting access to affordable devices or are moving more and more of their life to a more connected life and to a more, like digitally designed life because it makes it easier. Like our phone has become this great source of knowledge and power. It's also become a crutch for a lot of the things that we do. And it's also opened up, it's opened up the world to people that maybe aren't exposed to a lot of things. Like you know, my, my dad is 70 and uh, up until, oh, maybe Seven years ago, like within his 60s, maybe 10 years ago, he'd never really used a computer for work. Um, and now he's got an iPhone. He's on it all the time. He doesn't do social media, but instead of asking me to Google something, he can Google it himself. He's got an Amazon Alexa he can ask questions to. Um, and I've seen him become more and more connected. And with that, he's on his phone more and more. Like when he's outside planting, I'll see him check his phone. When he's inside watching golf or baseball, he'll check his phone. Um, it's been fascinating to see kind of this like second evolution of man where we've gone from like walking upright to like walking upright with our heads slightly tilted now staring at our phones. It's it's incredible to see. I mean, it's it's an evolutionary thing that we're, we're all witnessing. When I think basketball is unique in this sense too, is that it's a team sport, right? Like 
baseball might have way more games. Baseball might have way more people on the on the team, but it definitely doesn't require teamwork like an NBA team does. So trying to leverage no. the chemistry that is innate in basketball and the teamwork that you need and the connective tissue between players, um, like you need you need them to like each other, or at least you need to like them uh, like playing with each other because you get something out of it, and it's hard to build that trust. Um, you know, without actually having interactions, real life interactions. And so I guess in the end, um, basketball is a perfect test tube for trying to leverage the phone uh, because of the travel, because of the sleep deprivation, because of the team aspect of it, because of all the money involved, because of the superstar envy, um, because of the public nature of just how Instagram is such a big part of being an NBA player, this seems like one of the more, um, you know, this seems like the holy grail of if we can figure this out, and I guess you mentioned it with Sabermetrics, if we can figure out healthier use over our phones, it might unlock just better team dynamics. It might unlock better careers. It might unlock better relationships between players and coaches and executives and ownership. Um, and it might unlock, and we haven't even touched any of this, but just the fan interaction with social media um, and being engaged for positive rather than tearing down players. Um, I think this is, I think this is just, this, this is the beginning of something big. It really is. And over the last couple of years, you and I have talked about this heavily and we've seen firsthand. I mean, we've seen Adam Silver physically, in person talked about this and he sat on stage at Sloan and said, you know, the, the phone has enabled the NBA to reach all these markets around the world where pe- people can open up their phone and watch, uh, you know, a Raptors Thunders game in, in Hong Kong or in Delhi or in, you know, Bucharest, Romania. And they've been able to reach all these new markets and teams and people interested in the national basketball association. And in the same breath, he also mentioned that one of the biggest problems the NBA is having is mental health around players' cell phone usages. And I heard from an executive that there's this movement to get more and more players online. So they want to have a way for players to connect more with fans and being more open and exposed through um, any number of digital platforms, whether it's you know their own private Instagrams or, or, or Twitters or team-focused ones or online platforms. And the NBA is pushing that so that the players can feel more like humans and the fans can feel more connected to their teams. But at the same time, he's very quick to say, without really proving any sort of evidence of what steps they're taking to fight it, that the cell phone has been one of their biggest problems in their current product. I mean, players are sad and depressed and have anxiety, and more and more players are talking about mental health. And it's going to look pretty, pretty poor on the NBA if you have players drop out of a season or fail to show up or fail to play because they can't get the proper treatment or care that they need from their teams because they either don't know how to talk about it or don't know how to express themselves or feel like their phones have taken over their lives and are now ruining their career. Yeah. And I think, you know, the player movement era is that, you know, teams are going to have less and less institutional knowledge about a player because, you know, with these shorter contracts, you don't have this long run up time to understand what makes a player tick, to understand what their insecurities are or what buttons to push to get the best out of them, what buttons to avoid to get the worst out of them. And so this is all just in in 
hyper focused now. Like it's accelerating at a speed that, you know, the board of governors don't really know what to do with free agency and like team building and the things that, you know, used to be just taken for granted in, in the NBA is just like, hey, we've got this core for the next five, six, seven years. And let's use this year or two to like learn about each other and to develop. They don't have that anymore. So all this, yeah. all this, the, the ability to use your time efficiently, use um, your phones or use, you know, sleep habits, eating habits, running habits, conditioning, uh, whether it's learning the playbook, like all of this stuff is being crunched now more than ever. And it just seems like if we can figure out, not just the player side, but media too, if we can figure out a better use of our time so that we're not going to suffer from burnout um, and we're not going to be caught up in the web of like he has this many followers or, or she has this many retweets or that tweet got this. And I think if we can figure out how to be healthier on the whole, um, I think the fans will feel it. I think the players will feel it. Uh, I think the coaches will feel it. And it just be the sense of relief. J.J. Reddick said last year uh, he, he got off all social media and he said it was the greatest feeling in the world. What we need to do oh, is yeah. what he needs to do or what we all need to do is figure out how we can stay online to help each other or stay online to uh, make ourselves better make ourselves more productive, make ourselves happier and have that life still uh, be the greatest feeling in the world and have that sustain. And I don't think we're there yet, right? Like, I don't think we've figured it out yet. I don't know if we'll figure it out this year, next year, or five years, but um, just greater awareness about how our, our relationship is with our phone and persuasive technology and the notifications. I mean, you've taught me so much about, you know, just you know, uh, a push notification, when it happens, how it happens, how it makes you feel, how frequently it happens, that's all programmed. Um, and there are good ways to do it and there are bad ways to do it. Um, and I think it's just, it's fascinating. Um, so any last thoughts here um, on the NBA season as we get into next year and, and, and some things that you've thought about? Sure, I'll, I'll give you one, one, one more note on, on the cell phone about what can be done. And then two, I'll give you my wild NBA idea that I have. Um, there's a, a lot of responsibility that goes back to the tech companies to clean up their platforms. And personally, I think they failed the consumer and they failed the user um, to build platforms that are healthy and mindful and non-toxic. Um, I see every single day a company like, so these companies, you know, they're free. They make their money by the time you spend on them. And so they are not motivated to kick people off their platform because they're not motivated to have fewer users. And, and places like Twitter have been so slow. They've had a toxicity problem and a hate problem since inception, which is like 10 years ago almost, 11 years ago, I guess, 2008. Uh, they've been so slow to adapt some of these things to really clean up their platform. And I hope more and more people put more pressure on the big five, so on your Apples and Facebooks and Twitters and Instagram and Snapchats to build these tools to make a happier and healthier platform for people to use. If these companies don't, and I think they think that they're invincible, people will leave. They will find other ways to do it. They will have a mass user exodus problem, and they're going to be gone. You know, they're only as valuable as their users. So I really, really want people to stress when they use these platforms to really fight for what they think may be a more mindful experience. I know it's hard to do, and it's kind of yeah. a David versus Goliath story, but 
it's uh, something everybody should really think about. Uh, and then to do a complete 180, you're ready for that. <laughs> we're talking about this. <laughs> Uh, so my, my wild and crazy MBA idea is there is like a certain kind of like archetype style of MBA player. Like there's an infinite number of six foot nine, six foot 10, really long, lanky guys. They can jump. They can like kind of play defense because they have long arms. They can sort of shoot because they're in the MBA. But for the most part, they're like interchangeable. You look at guys like, um, oh, uh, maybe like a Ben McLemore or like a Rondé Hollis Jefferson because we have to talk about Arizona or <laughs> any one of those guys, like even like a Marvin Williams from five years ago. You know, every team has one. It'd be really interesting, and I'd like to see the NBA adopt like a behavioral-based um, kind of like wonder look test to really find out with these players, which ones bring something um, that's like a little bit different on, on the surface area. So like, could you, could you go out and find players that you knew were really good about forming good habits? Um, and would that be a more valuable draft, the draft pick oh, yeah. than somebody that is like, you know, whatever. Like any number every, in every draft, there's a Kansas, Kentucky, Arizona, Duke, North Carolina, Michigan State player that could have gone to any of those schools. They're the same exact player. So how could you separate that guy uh, and instead of paying him, you know, make, making a bad draft pick and taking him too early, finding him in the later round because you knew that he was going to sleep better, stick to, uh, you know, stick to a better diet, build better habits instead of wasting money on a knucklehead that flames out in two years. Um, like the I'm Jared Dudleys. Like, like find the Jared, yeah, the Jared Dudleys Dudley. that – uh, are basically like assistant coaches, but also can play. Exactly. And there's, there's any number of guys that you see that really excel um, in Europe that are the same height, the same weight, the same thing as any other guy that's making, you know, $10 million a year in the NBA. Why is one guy in the NBA and one guy in Europe? And could you find somebody through the behavioral sabermatics to make better educated draft picks and better educated free agent signings to have this kind of like, um, low overhead, low maintenance player that you knew was going to be the same, maybe even slightly less, but not have all of the um, like knuckleheadedness that NBA coaches hate dealing with every single day. Well, I think that's kind of what the Spurs model was, is right, like finding undervalued yeah. um, players who they knew they could bring into their system and develop them. And whatever their secret sauce was, I'm sure it had something to do with that, right? I, I would love to talk to somebody in the Spurs organization uh, to find out because if that's true, they uh, they are leaps and bounds, leagues and years ahead of any other team by really tapping into behavior first, figuring everything out later. That's uh, you know that's groundbreaking. I think it's why the Spurs have been so successful in the last uh, you know two decades. So you're you're coming into uh, the NBA season, and who do you have winning it all? Just uh, as we go, I want to hear what you, uh, who's way smarter than me, um, which team you like. Oh, man, that's a tough question. So I know everyone's going to drag me when I say this, but I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, so I'm a Laker fan. So by default, I have to take my hometown team. Um, Wait, do they have a also, Wildcat on their team? Uh, we have a coach, believe it or not. Uh, Quentin Crawford, he was like a walk-on at Arizona a couple of years ago. He just uh, is an assistant coach. And I think Miles Simon is still there, the great Miles Simon. Oh, yeah. um, but no players this season that I can think of. 
Okay, so that's a big, big. But they should. They should just go out and find all the Wildcats. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't think you're really going out on a limb saying that uh, Anthony Davis and LeBron James are going to win it all. Um, that's a really good tandem. They're as good as any team. I'm going to sit yeah. down and write a, a top duos column here in a little bit, and um, they're going to be number one. And, uh, I mean, they're, they're okay. two of the best players in the league, and they're on the same team, and they're in L.A. But, as we saw with the Toronto Raptors, anything can happen in this league. I love it. Anything where, where do you rank uh, Kawhi and Paul George on that list? Are they uh, like a 1B or a, a 2? Uh, you'll have to wait and see. Oh, come on. I, I like the Clippers this year, too. My, my, one of my best friends is a huge Clipper fan. Uh, I'm excited for him to be able to watch an exciting product for the first time in his life. Like he just got married, just got back from the oh, honeymoon. Oh, stop. The whole Lob trade City was, what, was eight honeymoon. years ago? Lob City was like... Yeah. It was like the first time in his life he's going to see... Exciting basketball for the Clippers? I mean, the first time when he feels good, he didn't feel good about those Lob City teams. And <laughs> if you want him on the podcast, if you want to do a Clippers-only podcast, he will talk your ear off for, for days on end. He's the most okay. diehard Clippers fan I know. But even they, they still had some, some you know, glaring holes in that team and some, some goofballs. So he feels good. I'm happy for him. Maybe the Clippers will win it all, too. I only checked my Twitter twice while we did this podcast, so you'll be proud of me. Two times. Well, I, I had to check. I had to check a quote because um, Mike Dunlap, who is the former Bobcats, uh, infamous Bobcats head coach, tweeted about the Pat Fitzgerald thing. So I opened up Twitter at, at, for 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 work related purposes. Okay, so don't yell at me. Do you want to know a fun Mike Dunlap uh, fun fact? What's that? He's a former uh, University of Arizona assistant basketball coach. Oh my. <laughs> on that note, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, know why you're inviting me on. You knew I was going to do this. Uh, yeah, it's great. Um, I, I hope, I hope for your sake that Iguodala lands on a on a championship contending team because I love I love watching him play. So, uh, um, and Larry Markinen. I love Larry. Yeah, that kid's great. He's good. Um, He's great. So, hey Matt, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, you've taught me so much about the stupid things I do on my phone and the good things I do on my phone and what we need to do better. So, um, thanks for joining and yeah, enjoy the rest of the, uh, the, the rest of the summer and the beginning of the NBA season. Thank you for having me. This is a real treat. If anybody's interested, they can find out more about our work at boundless.ai. They can download our free ebook at boundless.ai slash ebook. And if they feel like they have, um, a poor relationship with their device or with apps on their device, they can go to youjustneedspace.com uh, and download the Space app for iPhone, Android, and also for their web browser to so get a better, a better grasp on uh, how they're using their phones and kind of form better habits around, um, around their devices. Awesome. Uh, really cool stuff, man. And uh, I will talk soon. I right, appreciate it. Thanks again. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. A big shout out to Matt Mayberry at Matt Mayberry on Twitter. You can find uh, you know his company at Boundless.ai. Um, no .com, it's just .ai. Uh, that's fancy. You can check out the Sloan Conference uh, panel that we did back in March uh, at the YouTube channel for the Sloan Conference. Go watch that. It was me, Sue Bird, uh, George Carl, Steve Magnus, and Matt for a really fun hour. And you know what? Go 
outside and have great time with your family, your friends, your kids, whatever it is. Put your phone down every once in a while. But when you do pick your phone up, again, definitely hit subscribe, rate, and review and tell all your friends to do that, okay? I uh, appreciate that. Until next time on the Haver Show podcast, we'll talk soon.